Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. It's my great pleasure to introduce tonight Ruth Carlson, the author of Secret San Francisco, um, and uh, she's done a lot of journalism, a lot of television work, and so on, uh, and now she's got this just great little book with all the little tidbits about San Francisco. You're really going to love this. Ruth. Well, thank you. Very excited to be here. Uh, I have to start with how many of you live in San Francisco? Oh, okay. And how many of you were born here? Oh, yeah. Okay, it's a tough crowd. That's what I thought. Especially the people that were born here. You're the readers that I really tried to impress the most. I used to work in the news business, but writing this book was more nerve-wracking than any of my TV and radio deadlines. I knew if I screwed up, I'd never hear the end of it from true San Franciscans. <laughs> they know their city. They love their city. And, but many of them are surprised. I was happy to see. And that made me feel like the book was a success when I mentioned things like the underground tours of the sewer, the only theater built just for sound, or a circus house for adults. Tonight, I'm going to reveal some weird places to go, share some obscure history, tell you secrets that will be in the book's second edition, and introduce you to some of the wonderful characters that I met writing this book. I grew up in little San Francisco. You didn't know that was a place? Anybody know know where that is? (laughs) Yeah, most people don't. (laughs) But my hometown of Dubuque, Iowa, proudly calls itself Little San Francisco. (laughs) Uh, Unlike the rest of Iowa, it's very hilly. Uh, It's on the water, the Mississippi River, and it has Victorian houses and a gorgeous Eagle Point Park that's on the National Historic Registry. But mostly it's the lone cable car, uh, or funicular, I love that word, funicular. Uh, It was installed in, where was it, 1882 by a wealthy banker who wanted to make it easier to get home for lunch because he didn't have time to go all the way up the hill with his uh, carriage and have lunch and then get back to work. And that's where the similarities end, and that's why I moved here 44 years ago. (laughs) A lot of people have asked me how I found the uh, weird items in my book. I put on a blast on social media, and every person that I interviewed and talked to uh, turned me on to somebody else, told me another story. I talked to a lot of historians, public relations people, bartenders, tour guides, read a lot of books, and I spent a lot of time at the uh, San Francisco Library's History Room. That is really a a great place. And two decades of writing travel articles helped a lot, too, because that job is part detective, part listening skills. I really believe everybody has a story. And part exploring off the beaten path. So here's a few of the unusual factoids I found out about San Franciscans. The Bay Area loves to complain right now uh, about traffic and crowds, but that's nothing compared to the gold rush days. The San Francisco population went from about 1,000 in 1848 to roughly 25,000 one year later. And does anybody here know who invented the fortune cookie? Yes, yes, the Japanese. And I just found out that apparently they're still doing that. They're still making them. Very uh, small number, but they are. But San Francisco made it popular during World War II, and I'm really hoping the Golden Gate Fortune Cookie Factory stays in business. If you haven't gone, go. It's in Chinatown. You can write your own messages. Uh, 
<laughs> you can. There are more dogs per person than any other city in the U.S. I'm sure you guys know that. There are fewer children per capita. I'm sure you guys know that than any other city in the U.S. And does anybody know what the city's official instrument is? <laughs> Nobody? No? Okay. I'm, yay, I, I got gotcha. you. Yes, it's the accordion. Yes. It almost lost to the violin because that was Joe Aliota's instrument, and uh, his daughter Angela wanted it to be that. But what happened was accordion players from all over the Bay Area came down to City Hall, and they played nonstop until... <laughs> it's true. Until the supervisor said enough already. Okay, it's the official instrument. Uh, and at one time, I found this hard to believe, I left my heart in San Francisco it was very controversial. Uh, they almost uh, didn't have it be the official song, but that's a whole other long, longer story. Uh, Golden Gate Park, I was also surprised about this, 20% larger than Central Park. The San Francisco City Hall Dome is the highest in the nation. The last official duel was fought here over slavery. Burning Man, Santa Con, and the first Cat Cafe all started here. San Francisco built the first skyscraper, and it took 40 years until they built another one, which was, of course, much higher. And no matter where you live in San Francisco, a park is only 10 minutes away. We're the first city in the nation to achieve that goal. And finally, this one I bet you can guess. What is the oldest and largest public affairs program in the country? <laughs> the Commonwealth Club. When I started writing the book, a lot of people told me, you've got to meet this guy. They call him the Whirling Dervish and see his crazy house. It's out near St. Francis Wood in the suburban area. And uh, I went there, and the hype lived up to his name. It's the Greg Angelo Museum, and Greg Angelo himself is here. And he came here on rollerblades, which is his only mode of transportation in San Francisco. That's all he does. So I'm going to turn this over to, briefly to Greg Angelo. Thank you, Ruth. It's really a joy to be here and a surprise. Uh, my name is Greg Angelo Herrera. I'm half Lebanese, half Mexican. I grew up in San Francisco's Chinatown, which I always say makes me 100% San Franciscan all the way. It really does. I'm a native. I'm not indigenous to San Francisco, but I'm a native. I did grow up here. I'm st I always say I'm still growing up here. Um, I'm an artist. I've always made a living my whole life as an artist. When I was very young, I started out in um, ethnic dance because of the two cultures I was from. I was always in dance classes, learning about Arabic dance and Mexican dance and the music and such. And then I ended up actually developing an act called the Whirling Dervish. Um, that, I was 15 years old at the time. And it was my very first job, and I made $30 a night. And I'll never forget that. That was like, oh my gosh, I can make a living. I can make money doing this. It's amazing. And I never look back. And that act, to this day, I still do perform it. I still get calls for it, which is quite remarkable to me. Um, but through the arc of all that, I, um, I developed a company called Velocity Circus. It was a, literally a circus company um, using ethnic acts. I was learning in the arts that there are all these different... Um, ethnic arts that were actually developed in the circus acts. There were rites of passages and stuff. So I brought all these artists together. We formed a small troupe called Velocity Circus. And um, over the years, we were getting commissions and doing quite well with it. And then it developed to a larger company called Velocity Arts and Entertainment, which I still run to this day. And I was running it out of my house, which was a dilapidated rental property out in Balboa Terrace on the west side of the city. And um, 
Yeah, that was starting in about 1980 or so when we started that. And little by little, I'd kind of use a house as a lab to build costumes in certain installations. I was doing public works for museums and fairs and festivals. And it, it, I would kind of just keep working on this house, fix it up, put in new plumbing, whatever I needed to do. But it was all I had. A, my only principle was that it had to be artists um, who were doing the work in the house. So, so in fact, I just left the house about an hour ago on my roller skates. And uh, when I left, there's about 10 artists in residence. So right now we have about four interns. And, and though Ruth advertised this place, which is now called the Gregangelo Museum, it's not, my na- that's, it's not a museum to me. It's not really a museum at all. Um, it's become a hub, of a, a safe place for artists to come work and make a living in this city. Um, it's become a place where people now from all over the world are coming to. In fact, when I left the house today, there was a family of seven people outside. And all I can do is look at them and say, this is a miracle that, that you're here in front of my house. This was not meant to be a, an attraction. It wasn't designed. It wasn't planned. It happened quite, quite organically. Um, it's become sort of a, a cultural hub um, in the city now. Through, this is, you know, I'm 40 years into it um, by this point. And it's, it, you know, and I'm really grateful that Ruth showed up, found it. She did the tour. I had no idea that Ruth was a writer when I met her um, and, and added it to the book. Um, it's very richly uh, visual, what I do. So I did bring some visuals to show you guys quickly. There's a little, uh, being an artist, we never have budgets for marketing and stuff like that. I never intended to market this house. It was just somewhere where I lived and, and worked. Um, and in the last two years, during our sort of culture class that we're experiencing in San Francisco, a growth, um, a change in the city again, um, I've, I've decided to actually focus on it more and open it to the public. And I've kind of been saying that San Francisco is going through a metamorphosis. Being a, a native here, growing up in the 60s and the 70s and coming of age in the 80s, I've seen a lot of change. We've all seen a lot of change here. And everybody, you know, after two or three generations, a store closed and everyone thinks it's the end of the world. Well, it's not. It's the beginning of something new. Um, and the house, we're using it for that quite intentionally now to show people arts and culture alive and well um, here in the city. This metamorphosis, I, I believe we're going to, when we come out of this cocoon right now, I think we'll be blossoming into something quite spectacular. Again, not that we aren't right now. I think everything's always quite spectacular. So um, there's a, um, I've spent my life producing shows and such, and there's a song that a, a local writer named Rita Abrams wrote. Um, for one of our shows that was about San Francisco. And I think, I'm going to just say a lyric that I think is a wonderful lead-in to the visuals of the house, and that is, step inside of a painting that's come alive. Everyone adds a color to the scene. I've turned my house into a circus. My name is Craig Angelo. I've lived in San Francisco my whole life. When I bought this house, the place was a total caved-in dump. It was bad, it was depressing, and it was miserable. I've created another world. The very first room in the house is what I call the dust hall right here. And here guests immerse into this room. The curtains are closed. We open these curtains and we enter right into the solstice room. This particular room in its recent incarnation probably took about two years um, to complete. And um, that's when I was really experimenting a lot with this sort of Islamic um, mathematical art. And I did all, I completely did this entire room with these two hands myself. To this day, I'm still the guy who leads it, and I, and I still 
absolutely enjoy connecting with the guests. In the beginning when I was doing this, people would ask me, how much does this cost? How do you afford it? And I used to always say it cost a can of paint and like an, a, an endless, infinite amount of imagination and work. And that's still pretty much how we're operating here as artists. If I'm passing by this house, I will never imagine something like this can exist here. It's absolutely breathtaking. To see people have a lovely time in my home, to me, is just, it's, it's, it fulfills the meaning of, of my life, of my purpose, if there is such a thing. Thank you. Thank you. So that's just a, a little glimpse. Um, we've been very lucky for just being artists doing our thing. We're not marketing people or anything to keep getting these sort of um, television specials. That one happened to me on Netflix. I didn't even know what it was when they came over. I didn't, I really didn't know. I'm kind of busy doing other things. And um, when I saw the final cut, I, I was, it, was a, it was an incredible experience filming it. Um, a lot of things happened during the arc of that filming. And the first thing that happened, as soon as the crew, the crew from London, got off the plane, they took me up to the top of Lombard Street and told me to skate down the hill. I was like, oh, are you, are you trying to kill me in the first scene? But, <laughs> and while we were doing that, um, their, their production vehicle got robbed, smashed and grabbed. Everything got stolen. Their passports, their computers, their equipment... Everything, And then I had to play the ringmaster in the circus and be the show must go on. And we had an incredible, extraordinary time together through the arc of that week they were filming. And when I saw the final cut, I was like, that's kind of, that was kind of not that involved. And I was about to call the director. I'm like, what's up? And within an hour, we got about 100 calls and the floodgates opened and people just started coming through the home. And something I joke about is, is our, our guys in the house always say, the house is not about design or decor or anything. It's very unintended, the whole thing. And um, just last week, somebody sends me, there's a SF Weekly has the best of San Francisco. And last week, an artist forwards me, you got the best of San Francisco. I'm like, what for? The best decorated house. And I was like, you know, I was like oh, well, as long as it brings people in, they'll, they'll discover there's a lot more beyond um, decoration. The, the real function of the house, I would say, is that it's, um, it really is, it's about everybody walks into the house. You really are a character in the scene. I always say it's a... Um, it's an equalizer for all walks of life, no matter what your background. It's a place that sort of not only questions, but will actually shatter indoctrinations. We do that kind of intentionally now um, because we, we realize that people are holding a lot of things that, that mask their own truth. So there's a 27 rooms in the house now. We have different levels of tours. And people spend two, three, four, sometimes five hours in there. We go at people's own paces. And that's also been quite remarkable to me. Um, how people really time slows down and they talk to each other. I say it's a place to, to connect. That's really what it is. And, and the more we experience this culture clash, the more the digital age is surfacing, the more I want to adapt to it, but the more I realize that people really do need to do what you're doing today, come together, have discussions, listen to one another, connect with each other. And that's really the intent of, of the house. It's not like a museum where we don't even talk about the art, to tell you the truth. It's simply a catalyst to get people to connect, to ask important questions of each other, to allow everybody to be themselves. Now, Ruth advertised it as a, a circus house for adults, but we do a lot of family events there as well. We've been hosting a lot of graduations and kids and, and so forth. But, um, but adults, I think, need it more than anybody to learn how to play and to imagine and to, I say, reignite their imagination that has often been, been doused out of them. Um, it's true, <laughs> you know. So... Um, 
I think it's really timely that this book came out uh, with Ruth at a time when uh, we are experiencing exchange, that, that it's really important how Ruth has highlighted so many small businesses and a lot of the arts and culture that are struggling now because we've been literally through all of the large press written out of existence. I find myself constantly writing to um, publications saying, stop saying the artists aren't here. We're here, we're alive, we're well, we're thriving. The culture is fine. It's just, it's just in flux. So thank you, Ruth. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to follow that. Thank you very much. So out of the 90 entries in the book, uh, for some reason, this one has attracted the most attention. So I thought I would read part of Stinky Saturday to you. (laughs) It's the hottest ticket in town. Book months in advance, and it's not a chance to see Hamilton or the Warriors. It's the city's underground. Every month, people sign up for free tours of San Francisco's sewer system, or uh, as the PUC, Public Utilities Commission, markets it, wastewater treatment plants. Sounds much better. I went to the southeast treatment plant, which handles 80% of the city's sewage. There's another treatment plant near the zoo called Oceanside. I heard that's more fragrant. I didn't get a chance to go there. Uh, Like most special events, it requires a dress code. In this case, it was closed-toed shoes, closed-toed shoes, long sleeve shirt and long pants, a hard hat, and reflective vest. But instead of white gloves, they provide latex gloves. Our tour guide was a lawyer who said he quit his job, and he went to work for the wastewater treatment plant because he wants to make a difference. thought that was really interesting. <laughs> I, I didn't mean it to be funny, but... But our sewers apparently go above and beyond the strict environmental laws. Uh, The city's sewer system dates back to the gold rush, uh, and it's very unique. We might be the only city, we're one of the few, that has a combined system. We collect and treat stormwater together with drains and houses and businesses. They all come together. So that means workers find some unusual things. Uh, They find the usual wedding rings, money, drugs. But one time, a whole family of ducks came through. And they're still alive. They were, still, they were fine. <laughs> so check out the Public Utilities Commission website if you want to get your free tickets to this underground tour. Everyone's telling me they, they want to do it. I, it was interesting. <laughs> Another unique thing about San Francisco is our governance system. England took our Meghan Markle. Dang it. But we also have royalty. Maybe, maybe you've seen him walking around town in his ostrich hat and military uniform. And I hope everyone has practiced their bows because Emperor Norton, a.k.a. Joseph Amster, is here to talk to you. Thank you. Good evening. I was born Joshua Abraham Norton in London, England, on February 4th, 1818. I'm 201 years old. Not bad, huh? (laughs) Sunscreen. I highly recommend it. At a very young age, my family emigrates to Algoa Bay, Cape of Good Hope, South Africa. It is there that my father was in the ship chandlery business. He sold ship rigging, supplies, that sort of thing. Very successful at what he did. When he died, he left me an inheritance of $40,000, which in those days was a pretty fair amount of money. 
I come to San Francisco in 1849, but unlike others of that era, I do not seek my fortune in the gold fields of the Sierra. I make my money by investing in real estate and commodities in just four years. I increased that fortune to $250,000. That's $10 million today. So I am a wealthy man indeed. I hobnob with the best in town. I'm a member of the Vigilance Committee and the Freemasons. My fortune, great as it was, was not enough. I wanted more money. So I hatched a scheme that I thought could not fail. I was going to corner the market on rice. It made perfect sense. There's a rice famine in China. There are no exports of rice to the United States. The price of rice in San Francisco is soaring. And I buy up all the rice in the city. And I put it on a warehouse boat in the harbor. And I'm going to hold on to it, force the price to peak, and make myself a vast amount of money. (laughs) What I didn't count on were two boatloads of rice from Peru that come sailing into the bay at that very moment. That creates a glut on the market. Instead of rising as I'd anticipated, the price instead plummets. To far less than what it was than before the famine, I'm wiped out. I lose everything. I have to declare bankruptcy. Shamed, broken, and forgotten. I disappear for a couple of years. No one knows where I went or what happened to me. Until the 17th of September, 1859, the morning I walk into the offices of the San Francisco Daily Evening Bulletin newspaper and hand it to George Fitch a proclamation, which he prints in that evening's edition. It reads, at the peremptory request and desire of a large majority of the citizens of these United States, I, Joshua Norton, Formerly of Algoa Bay, Cape of Good Hope, and now, for the last nine years and ten months past, of San Francisco, California, declare and proclaim myself Emperor of these United States. Thank you, thank you. And in virtue of the authority thereby in me vested, do hereby order and direct the representatives of the different states of the Union to assemble in Musical Hall of this city on the first day of February next, then and there to make such alterations in the existing laws of the Union as may ameliorate the evils under which this country is laboring, and thereby cause confidence to exist, both at home and abroad, in our stability and integrity. With that I become Norton I, Emperor of the United States. Thank you. Thank you. I would later add the title Protector of Mexico. Now, if I were to do that in any other city in the world, it would be dismissed as the rantings of a madman. Except San Francisco. Here we have a tradition of embracing and encouraging the, um, let's just say eccentric. So instead, the people of San Francisco will treat me as if I were their emperor for the next 21 years. 
I am given a suitable uniform by the officers of the Presidio. I eat for free in restaurants, have the best seats in the theater. On opening night, people rise in my honor. The police salute me. Businesses clamor for my endorsement. I ride transit for free. I even print my own imperial treasury bonds. These were accepted as legal tender throughout the city whenever I presented them. As emperor, I would issue numerous proclamations, some of which were considered a little bit daft at the time. But I was a great visionary, for many of my ideas actually came true. Example. In 1872, I proclaimed that a bridge should be built spanning San Francisco Bay to Oakland. There it stands, in nearly the exact spot where I called for it. Oh, you may know it as the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge, but really, it should be called the Emperor Norton Bridge. (laughs) I said, bring the nations of the world together in one place to promote peace and harmony. The United Nations were formed in this city in 1945. I proclaimed that a great Christmas tree should be erected every year in Union Square. Have you seen it? My Christmas tree, the first public Christmas tree in America. I abolished Congress, the Supreme Court, the presidency, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Can I get an amen? I also issued another proclamation which is still the law in this city and strictly enforced at all times. Whoever, after due and proper warning, shall be heard to utter the abominable word Frisco, (laughs) which has no linguistic or other warrant, shall be deemed guilty of a high misdemeanor and pay the imperial treasury as penalty the sum of $25. You've all been sufficiently warned. I have a long and prosperous reign of 21 years. The night of January 8, 1880, is a cold and drizzly night in San Francisco. 8 p.m., I exit the Eureka Lodgings, a boarding house on Commercial Street between Montgomery and Kearney. I walk a half block up Commercial and turn left on Kearney, walk two blocks down Kearney to California Street, cross California Street, and start climbing Knob Hill. One block is my destination, the California Academy of Sciences, at the corner of what was then known as DuPont, but now Grant and California, Caddy Corner to Old St. Mary's Cathedral. It is there that I am to attend a debate and lecture of the Hastings Society. As I reach the crest of the hill across the street from Old St. Mary's, a cable car goes by. Some of my loyal subjects on board wave to me. I wave back, stumble and fall on that corner, and that is where I pass away. January 8th, 1880, 8.15 p.m. The next morning, newspaper obituaries start running across the country. The one in the San Francisco Chronicle reads, Le Roi est mort. The king is dead. Now, I am headed to a pauper's grave because they don't find much more in my room than five dollars in silver and gold, this 1828 French franc coin I'd been saving. 
correspondence, newspaper clippings, telegrams, and photographs. Tattered uniforms and hats and some walking sticks. Not much more. But luckily, one of my brothers from my days as a Freemason, Joseph Eastland, would take up a collection to ensure that I was given a proper send-off. I am laid out in a rosewood coffin, decorated with silver, in a funeral home at O'Farrell and Grant, where the ice cream museum stands today. (laughs) 30,000 people come to pay their last respects to me. They have to call out the police to hold the crowds back. My funeral procession is over two miles long. An estimated 200,000 people Virtually the entire population of San Francisco at that time lined the route to the cemetery. It is the biggest funeral the city has ever seen to this day. And as my coffin is lowered into the ground, there's a total eclipse of the sun. It really happened. Check the newspapers. It's true. I am reburied in 1934 because I was originally buried in the Masonic Cemetery in the Richmond District, but as you know, our fair city dug everyone up and moved them, myself included. My second funeral had a 21-gun salute, full military honors, wreaths from city officials. Mayor Rossi was supposed to be there that day, but he had pneumonia. So John McLaren, the superintendent of parks, stood in his steed. And I reside still in the Woodlawn Cemetery in Colma to this day until I come out occasionally (laughs) to give walking tours under the guise of Emperor Norton's fantastic San Francisco time machine. I'd like to thank Ruth for inviting me here this evening and allowing me to share my story with you all. Thank you very much. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. (laughs) Writing this book was so much fun. meet the most fun people. And one of the best parts was hearing stories that were passed down through generations of San Franciscans. And I want to tell you a story about A.P. Giannini. I'm sure you know he founded Bank of America. And a lot of the story is not in the book. I didn't have enough room. And most of it conflicts with the official history from the Bank of America archivist. But this one's more fun, so I I like to believe this one. Uh, Giannini's best friend was Tom Crowley, owner of Maritime Fleet, of course, and Crowley's nephew, Tom Escher, told me this story. Um, He's CEO of San Francisco's Red and White Fleet. This is what has been passed down in his family. Giannini and Crowley were raised on Telegraph Hill when it was a working-class neighborhood, hard to believe now. And when he was young, Crowley's job was to make sure the laundry didn't fly off of the clothesline. And Giannini, next door, was in charge of watching the family goats. And sometimes the goats got loose and ran into Crowley's clothesline. Uh, That led to fistfights, but eventually led to them becoming best friends. And right after the 1906 quake, Giannini was concerned about the pandemonium, of course, in the city. And he asked Crowley, his buddy, to take the bank's deposits across the bay. 
So they thought a good idea was to hide the money in milk containers. The workers were like, why are these milk cans so heavy? And, and Crowley said, who cares? The company's paying us a lot of money. Don't worry about it. So when the boat arrived in Berkeley, nobody was there. So the skipper thought, well, it's milk. Who cares? And he left him on the dock. And Giannini went to the wrong dock, called up Crowley and says, you, your guy stole my money. But the next day, he found the right spot. And the milk cans, with millions of dollars inside, were still sitting there. And G- so Giannini ended up being the only banker in the city with money because the fires that came after that made it impossible for the other banks to open their vaults or the, the money would ignite. Um, but he didn't take advantage of that. And this part, I, I'm sure many of you know. He went down to the waterfront, put a plank of wood on two barrels, and just said, how much do you want? Had his customers line up. He knew them all by name. It didn't write anything down. And legend has it that they all paid him back. And because of this story... Many people say, and he was also friends with uh, George Capra, many people say the George Bailey uh, character in It's a Wonderful Life is based on Giannini. So that is the end of my prepared stuff, and I think George wants to have questions and answers. Oh. Does anybody have any questions that they would like to ask? Anything weird or wonderful that they know about? This is a follow-up to Greg Angelo's uh, presentation. What was the name of the Netflix feature sh- story? Yeah, come on up. Uh, the ne- it's, uh, oh gosh. It was called, uh, it had an, I think it ended up being called Amazing Interiors. And we're, I don't, I think we were called the Circus House. I don't, I haven't seen the whole show to tell you the truth. Um, somebody actually sent that to me. <laughs> but uh, Amazing Interiors, The Circus House, it would be featured among, I think they did 12 or 15 properties around the globe for that. In 1966, I had purchased a book called My Secret San Francisco, and they had food like $2 or $1. It was a black and white cover. Do you have any connection with that book? No, I don't. And other people, there are other books out there that, say, Secret San Francisco, but they don't have the a guide to the weird, wonderful, and obscure on it, because some people said, you, st- you stole their idea. It's like, well, it's actually the publisher's idea, the, the title, but I like it. It's fun. Titles can't be copyrighted anyway. Is that right? Huh? That's right, yeah. I do know that weird gets a lot of hits if you but put it out there on it does. social media. I know. I know. Weird is, I think I know. that's probably why they put weird in there. It's true. I know. Because of weird with San Francisco is why. <laughs> Next. Um, you, you wrote about Mark Twain being here. He was here about the same time as Emperor Norton was in charge, because I think he mentioned Emperor Norton in, in one of his uh, articles. I, I, can, I can actually speak to that, yes. Um, Come on up. Yes. <laughs> we are, well uh, I thought you might be able to. Yes, we are, we are um, well, uh, who's read Huckleberry Finn? <laughs> Do you remember the king? It's me. <laughs> and just he based demoted, that character in his encounters with me away. Our paths crossed many times uh, He worked in the Montgomery block Where the pyramid stands today And my boarding house was just a block away Not a very flattering portrait though, is it? <laughs> Says I was a drunk and a grifter I better never see him walking the streets of this city again <laughs> We're going to have words or fisticuffs, perhaps The real last duel so you, you mentioned a little bit about the last duel was here. Why don't you tell a little bit more about that? Because it was about over slavery, but it was an interesting, it was pre-Civil War, right? Yeah, that, uh, 
Yeah, must have been. Uh, that actually really surprised me because I never thought of slaves here, but apparently people from the South came and brought their slaves with them. And San Francisco was kind of a critical place where a lot of this took place. Senator Broderick um, was friends with the Justice, I can't remember his first time now, but uh, Terry. And then they fell they, they fought over the slavery issue. Broderick was uh, against it, and Terry was in favor of it. And so they ended up having a duel, and uh, Terry killed Broderick. There's a Broderick Street, a Broderick statue. But, uh, yeah, apparently his last dying words where I died over slavery. But 1858, 59, right, right, right before the Civil War started. Yes. You mentioned in your book. Yeah. Um, the, on your cover of your book, you have these dogs. Yeah. These classic dogs. You want to tell the story behind that? Because people, how many recognize those dogs as a classic San Francisco thing? <laughs> And tell the story Doggy behind Diner. where they came from. Yeah, there was a chain of, you guys know, a chain of stores, Doggy Diner, um, with hot dogs and hamburgers in San Francisco, and I think they had a few in Oakland, too. Uh, and then they went out of business, and I, I, I'm amazed, but a lot of the the doggy heads, which are, I think, 600 pounds each, they were just thrown in the in the dumpster. They didn't save them. But John Law, the three that were up here, um, he's a fascinating man. He was one of the people who... Uh, started Burning Man and SantaCon in, in the United States. And he had three that he saves, and he takes them out. They're on Treasure Island. So if you go to Treasure, they're right near the police station, right next to it. So instead of Dalmatians, they have doggy diner heads. <laughs> and he takes them out for um, for charity purposes, but other, on a big you know trailer, obviously. But otherwise, they're sitting there. And uh, there's one on Sloat Boulevard because Mayor Ed Lee decided that they were historic and we should have one. So it's kind of odd. You're just driving down Sloat Boulevard and there's this huge dog head. And I'm sure people from out of town go, what is that all about? But... It's kind of fun. I just can't believe they threw so many away. It's better than having the biggest ball of string uh, for first <laughs> Questions? Can you explain what the giant camera is? Oh, the giant camera. Yes. Um, this is out near the Cliff House, and it is Leonardo da Vinci really came up with the, the concept for this. Um, it takes... Gosh, this is hard for me to... It takes the photo and puts it in a prism uh, so you you can see it. I'm not explaining this very well. It's a, it's a, it's it's one, of, one of Leonardo's ideas for how to capture a, a, an image, and obviously this was done more than 500 years ago because he died 500 years ago this year. The, it, it, camera obscura, it, 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 it turns the image around and then turns it around again because uh, the normal thing is for it to turn it around. So uh, Leonardo was very interested in light, and he devised this thing. Um, I don't know if he had any kind of a big working uh, version of it, but somebody decided to build this. Just like a lot of things he designed uh, were done hundreds of years after he designed them. Yeah. It's called a, a kinetic scope. And uh, if you go there, you can see the ocean. You can see the beach. It's kind of fascinating. It, yeah. it, it moves, so you can, you can see what's going on in the area. You said you were going to tell us what was some things that were going to be in um, Volume 2. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I didn't have room for all of them. Um, the water taxi, I don't know if you guys know that, but it's so fun. It goes from um, the ferry building down to Fisherman's Wharf, and it stops at Pier 39. And if you're a local, you show them your ID, and it's only $5. Otherwise, it's $10, except weekends. They won't do it on the weekends. But it only seats about 10 people, and they give you a little tour on the way, um, and it's just, I just think it's a lot of fun, and a lot of people don't know about it. And it depends on the weather and stuff, too, but you can call them. They have, uh, they have yellow and black signs that say water taxi, and then if you don't see it there, you can call them and say, when are you going to be here? 
Um, and then there's a World War II museum in Chinatown that I thought was fascinating. It was basically about um, the Japanese um, taking over China for many, many years. I don't think a lot of Americans know, but I don't think it's really taught in the schools. That, that was pretty amazing. Uh, we have the largest wine school in the U.S. It's in South San Francisco, but close by. But they have classes for pros and amateurs. Um, and this, this one cracked me up. I'm sh- sure you remember uh, our supervisor, Wiener, and the nudity law and how yeah. it, almost, uh, it almost became legal to be nude, um, instead, public nudity. Instead, it's uh, allowed at certain festivals still. But I was really shocked to find out that in California, it's legal to go naked unless a city uh, in public, unless a city says no. So you could go naked unless the city has a, a law against it and <laughs> walk down the street. Uh, uh, should we assume that almost all cities do have that law? I don't think very many do because I don't think very many people uh, go naked in public. That's a San Francisco thing. I don't do think, here. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's a very, I don't think people need, need that law. Yeah. Naked people have little or no influence in society. That's, that's a Mark Twain saying. Ruth, do you know what happened to Forbes Island? Oh, yes. I wanted to do that very badly. I've been wanting to go there forever. And um, it's clo- it closed, and it is in, oh, gosh, uh, some, it, I believe it's Marin, and it's just kind of sitting there. It's somewhere. I can't remember exactly where, but I read about it, and I didn't do it because it's gone, so you can't go there and, and eat. But, yeah, that's a fast, it, Forbes Island, if you don't know, was a restaurant that was like a little island, and they took you on a boat down at uh, Fisherman's Wharf to go there, and you could sit downstairs and see the water. And So I'm wondering what some of your favorite places are in this first book. You have a lot in there, so like, what are your favorite two or three? Uh, what are my favorites? Well, I loved Greg Angelo. I loved Emperor Norton. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here today. Um, let me think. Uh, gosh. There were so many. The sewer tour, actually, I, I wasn't that fond of it, but people seem really excited about it. Uh, uh, well, as far as like history, I was very interested about the French history in the uh, in San Francisco. I didn't realize that the Gold Rush. Before there was a Chinatown, there was a French town, and they opened. Uh, I like to shop. They opened the first department store, uh, the City of Paris, and they opened the White House. And when the earthquake came. They uh, called their, well, didn't call, they contacted their cousins in France, and they said, send us everything you can for women and children clothes. And then they gave them all away. They didn't sell them. Um, as far as other things, uh, well, the giant camera is very fun. Um, oh, the labyrinth, I really liked a lot, too. That's out on Land's End, uh, overlooking the ocean, and that's an interesting story. Edward uh, Aguilera uh, is a auto-detailing uh, man, and at night, he would go and put these rocks out. He was very inspired by France and, I'll probably pronounce it wrong, Chartres, the um, famous labyrinth there. And he did it at night because the park rangers kept saying, get out of here, what are you doing? You can't do this. And it's just, this, it's hard to get to. It's hard to, to climb. You have to be able to climb. But it's just amazing. And there's dolphins below and there's... And, a few times, people, uh, probably teenagers, have dumped all the rocks in the ocean. But then everybody came together and put them all back again. A couple of the hotels survived the 1906 earthquake, the Palace Hotel and a couple of them up on the hill. 
Do you have any of the history for how they, why they survived and, and uh, why they were put back uh, together? The palace again? didn't survive, actually. The palace the, did not survive. No, the fire department took their water. that uh, They had water in reserves, but they took it, and they didn't realize that the fire was going to spread that far. So by the time they got to the palace, no, it didn't survive. Um, uh. I'm trying to remember what did. Uh, the Fairmont and the yeah. uh, St. Francis. St. Francis? Yeah, St. Francis survived, the original two towers. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mainly, the buildings that survived were steel frame construction. Mm. Uh, But it was very haphazard to what survived. There's an amazing amount of buildings within the fire zone that survived. I've identified about 20 of them Mm -hmm. um, that are still here. The St. Francis has a a great story. Uh, We we talk about Russian interference today, but um, when they were doing the um, League of Nations here, League of Nations, yes. No, United uh, Nations. Yeah. Which, United the, Nations. United Nations, sorry. When they had a meeting for the United Nations, they had people from all over the world coming here, obviously. The Russians came to the St. Francis, and they go and they had a, they have a clock in the lobby. It's still there. But that clock uh, was connected to every room and took care of the clocks in the room. And the Russians saw it and thought that they were being bugged. And so they cut all the wires, and <laughs> the clocks never worked since. Yeah. <laughs> So if you get one of the Russian rooms, your clocks don't work now still, or are they reconnected? Any other questions? Wasn't the uh, next door to this building survived the earthquake, right? The next door neighbor. Oh, oh the uh, Boulevard restaurant? Yeah. Yes. Uh, they say because the uh, bartender bribed the firefighters with beer and whiskey to sell. <laughs> <laughs> That's an alert employee. Other questions about San Francisco's history? Do you know about uh, a little bit of background on, on how we got the... the uh, Big city hall, uh, the you know, I mean, this. No, I don't. I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't write about that. I do yeah. know that it's larger, but I didn't write about that. Okay, so that's next week. We're going to have somebody <laughs> the whole history of the politics oh. and everything about that city hall. But it, it really, it, it when it was finished before the depression or something like that, right? And I, it's an amazing amount of money went into it. Oh. So I've always wondered why it, in the Pan Pacific exhibition in 1915, who put that together? How they got the money to fill in the marshland there and then all of that was ripped down with a couple exceptions the vans restaurant the palace of fine arts and then that was all redeveloped the real estate privately at and all the infrastructure has been put in in advance of the fair is there a story behind that is there some conglomeration of uh, rich individuals uh, that made a lot of money off that? I don't, I don't know. It sounds like a good story. I know that uh, they had Diego Rivero out here, and, and he was uh, making and, uh, Ansel, Adam, Ansel Adams, too. But, mm-hmm. Exactly. But well, I, I wonder how that got developed and, and why that swampland was chosen when there were so many other places that it could have been. Well, there were a lot of proposals as to where they were going to have it. They were going to have it in Golden Gate Park. They were going to have it on the whole west side. Why the Marina District was chosen, I don't know. But I know his business interests wanted to show that San Francisco was back from the earthquake yeah. and fire. Yeah, that's true. But it wasn't the Marina District until after the right. fair. Right. It was just swampland. And they had flying the boats then, too, which was uh, great. They were going to have it be the airport. Until World War II. Lindbergh landed there, yeah. Yeah, and then World War II came, and they said, uh, sorry, we're taking it over. Uh, And then after the war was over, then they they said, here, you can have this piece of land for SFO, the the military. We had a program about three years ago on on, uh, Phoebe Hurst, uh, the the wife. And uh, that author mentioned a lot about the Pan Pacific because she was one of the leading people trying to push it in. I won't go into, I, I don't, 
know any financial things in the background. But one of the stories she told was just fascinating, and that was that uh, the biggest problem they had in 1915 with that was that the ladies were all complaining, the, the ladies, uh, Phoebe Hurst and her, her, that individual females could walk around the exhibit without any kind of you know, chaperone, oh. and that that was considered completely scandalous. And they, they got it. It was going to be shut down until that rule was changed. Um, and then they made sure that that wasn't true because they didn't want to give the impression that this was uh, a scandalous exhibition. Huh. And the, the reason that they did the... Uh, yeah, so if, you're, if you ever wonder about whether any progress has been made in the last 100 years on issues, it's really good to read back about 100 years and see what people were arguing about and complaining about. Um, but, but I thought that was, that was fascinating. The other thing that, that the ladies did was they created dormitories uh, for the first time for the women at UC Berkeley because otherwise they didn't think that women would be able to be students and they wanted them to be the students. Yeah, they, she did a lot, of, a lot of stuff like that to try to make things possible. Yeah, the House of Shields Bar, which uh, right across from the Palace Hotel, they didn't let women in until the 70s and then they still had to sit up in the balcony. Yeah. <laughs> they've, got, they've got a very, with President Maureen and Palace Hotel, they've got a, quite a history there. Hi. I don't know how recent your book goes, but are there any hidden stories about the hippies in the 60s that... I didn't do a ton on that, but I did... Uh, there was a beatnik uh, outfit you could buy at Vesuvio's bar in North Beach. They had it in the window. It was kind of a, a joke because the, the beatniks wanted to be individuals, and this was a joke. Oh, dress this way, you know, in a uniform, and you'll be a, a beatnik, you know, with the beret, and they had a little... Someone in the window doing a painting. Um, and I talk about, of course, like um, uh, Ferlinghetti and uh, Jack Kerouac on the road, um, which I, turns out he lived, lived like two blocks from me when he wrote that in Russian Hill. I didn't know that. Um, but I, I didn't go in depth on the, on the 60s. How about comedians? I mean, there are a lot of famous comedians that got their start. I want to hear like Phyllis Diller. That's what mm-hmm. I've heard. That she was someone that got their start on the what, what, there was a comedy club, not the... Purple, Purple Onion. Onion, yeah. Purple Onion, yeah. yes. Yeah. Is that still running? I was there about 10 years ago. Uh, no, it closed so, yeah. a few closed. years ago, but yeah. everybody did a live album there yeah. in the 60s. Bob Newhart, the Smothers Brothers, yeah. Phyllis Diller. Yeah. 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 But nobody here is old enough to remember those. <laughs> anybody else? There's time for one more question. Anyway, I'll ask the last question. We'll bring out the weirdest thing about San Francisco. What's the weirdest thing about San Francisco? What's the weirdest thing about San Francisco? <laughs> um, leave with the 60s or the but, early 70s? Or? <laughs> that nude law is pretty weird. Uh, that's, that, that it barely passed, one vote. I mean, it almost yeah. became that everybody can walk around naked all the time. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I love this city. What, what's weird makes it cool, so... Well, there, we I had a, uh, a speaker a long time ago come and talk about the whole area, and, and he it was a professor at Stanford, of course, and he he traced the whole thing back to the gold rush that got all the weirdos here, and so from then on you had to be creative or unusual, and he said that the reason that you know because everything is allowed, some very interesting things happen, and the rest of the stuff we get yelled at by the rest of the world for what we allow. Yeah. <laughs> Still, I think one weird thing is that. San Franciscans don't like change. They complain about uh, Sutro Tower. They complain about anything, any new, the Transamerica building, and then they end up loving it, and now they're complaining about Salesforce. And when Tony Bennett was here, uh, they wanted to, Diane Feinstein was in office. She wanted to make um, 
I Left My Heart in San Francisco, the official song. And Warren Hinkle and Herb Cain, they, they said, no, that's horrible. We want San Francisco from the movie with um, Clark Gable, which, you know, San Francisco, open your goalie. So they had the gay men's chorus go down to City Hall and sing that song. And Tony Bennett was here in the hotel room in the Fairmont, and he said, I'm not going down there. It turned into like a drunken brawl. He's like, I'll be stoned. It's hard to believe that that was not uh, Everybody loves it now And that that proves what I think About all of human history People always complain You can tell the level of a civilization By what they're complaining about Mm -hmm. We're complaining about which song That's that's a civilization Thank you very, very much And so ends another event in the Commonwealth Club's 117 years of enlightened discussion.